Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley. Caroline's not joining us today on this wintry March day that we're recording this in Iowa. We have a return guest with us today, and I'm always delighted when that happens because... You know, to me, it's amazing that people can write and publish one book, and then when they do it, time after time after time, and it's they always have something fascinating to say, particularly today's guest, Jeff Hobbs. The book that we're talking about today is Children of the State, Stories of Survival and Hope in the Juvenile Justice System, and Jeff was the author of The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace, which won an L.A. Times Book Prize and was an NPR Best Book of the Year. And he was also the author of Show Them Your Good, which is the book that we talked about a couple years ago. And um, The Short and Tragic Life is currently being made into a major motion picture, so that's exciting, too. Um, Jeff, welcome back to Writer's Voices. Um, thank you, Monica. Um, it's really nice to, to talk to you again. So remind us how kind of how you got started into writing these books about, you know, the common theme is sort of um, the struggles of young people today to make it in an increasingly complicated world. How did, um, sure. Yeah. How did you how did you get started in that? Uh, well, it's a hard question to answer. I mean, the answer is simple, but it's hard to answer because it makes me very sad because the uh, the reason I got started and the way I got started is because my best friend died. Um, um, and I'm sorry to start off your show so heavy, um, but uh, you, you mentioned the short and tragic life of Robert Peace. Um, Robert, uh, Rob was my, my roommate and best friend for four years in college. Um, and he, um, I mean, to be brief, he, he was just a really good guy. He grew up in a really hard way and his dad was in prison and he, um, through a lot of, of, uh, hard work and great decisions, he went to Yale and, um, he, um, uh, didn't make it at age 30. He uh, was killed. And I remember, um, he died violently in his neighborhood where he grew up, and uh, it's not like um, I remember. I just put my daughter; she was one at the time. To maybe she was two or three, um, but I just put her to bed at that time and learned what had happened. And it's not like I learned that and or went to the funeral and thought I'd write a book about Rob. But uh, I, I went to the funeral, and as we do, we were all just telling stories and trying to have some joy to it and trying to celebrate him. And um, anyway, it's a long story, but I, I call that book a eulogy that got out of hand. I, I just volunteered to uh, put some of these stories together, not to write a book, but just something maybe for his family to have and us to have. And anyway, that turned into a book and uh, it turned into three years of stumbling around Newark, New Jersey, and just talking to dozens of people and learning um, all this stuff about Rob and his childhood and school and, and fathers and sons, and um, to me, pretty powerful stuff. And uh, and uh, that that's, sorry, a long answer to your really nice question about getting started on these stories. No, it's a perfect answer. And 
Were you working as a writer before that? Um, I was working somewhat as a fiction writer, um, which was what I had always wanted to do and aspired to do. And it's what I liked to read um, growing up. And I had been very fortunate as a pretty young person in my 20s to publish a novel um, that I had worked pretty hard on, but I also don't recommend that novel to anybody <laughs> anymore because I was young and uh, um, my sensibilities have changed. Okay, okay. I, I, won't, I won't ask you to name that for us, but anyone who wants to go look it up, look up Jeff Hobbs. I'm sure you'll find it out there somewhere. <laughs> oh, thanks, Monica. Thanks for that. So, do you think you'll ever go back to writing fiction? Um, I, I don't think anytime soon, or I, I can't see it at the moment, um, mainly because I, uh, I've i written these three nonfiction books now, and I'm working on some sort of waist deep in another. And, uh, uh, I mean, the, the stories I tend to tell um, are hard often and often don't necessarily have happy endings because it's real life and real life is messy. But um, I don't mean to sound pat or anything, but I, I just love it. I love being me personally, selfishly. I just love being with people and uh, sitting on porches and in cars and and just taking walks and learning people's stories and always being the person who knows the least and just learning. I just love it. You know, it's funny that you say that because um, a lot of times, you know, when people compliment me on, you know, being a good listener, being a good interviewer, and, and I say, well, you know, I already know my story. I'm not that interested in that. I'm interested in other people's stories. <laughs> Um, yeah, and no, it sounds I, I like you're right. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And in these books, you know, there, there's this tendency, I think, sometimes, where people want to write the feel-good story that has the happy ending. And you do have some happy endings for some of the people that you write about, but. I'm I'm assuming that when you go in, when you decide on that you're going to write a book on this subject, and it seems like the two that I've read, which is um, Show Them You're Good and The Children of the State, you in each case you're focusing on, I think, three main people that you're writing about and then the other people who are sort of in their periphery or in their lives. And uh, Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, and do you... At what point in your research do you decide who you're going to focus on? Because I'm guessing it's before you know whether they're going to have a good ending or not. Uh, yeah, that, that's a really good question. And without a real defined answer, because um, I guess with my work, I, I sort of just go places, like go to high schools, go go in this case of children of the state go to juvenile halls and um i mean th there's a process of access and consent and keeping everything above board um and um you know letting the students know why there's another white guy in a button down sitting in the back of their <laughs> classroom you know yeah 
<laughs> so the beginnings are, are always a little uh, stilted or awkward, but um, um, as time passes, I mean, your question is how, I guess, how I find those uh, individuals who... Right, and yeah, how you make that decision. Stories. Um, often, I mean, in, uh, in definitely in the case of children of the state in juvenile hall, I, I spent a lot of time in these facilities over um, not quite a year. It got cut short by the pandemic. Um, but, I mean, th these kids were in, for the most part, if you're in juvenile hall, you're in a situation of peak crisis and uh, tremendous uncertainty and anger and fear, um, often resignation. So there's a lot of uh, really hard feelings that saturate the rooms. So all this to say, in, in that situation of being in a juvenile hall, I was really um, careful to, I didn't want to be in anybody's hair or in anybody's face like with my notepad and pencil or anything because uh, they're carrying enough but I did um, you know sort of put myself as a a conduit because it is empowering I think you know this probably more than most people for people to uh, tell their story and have somebody listen um, and uh, so in, in those facilities actually kids kind of found me uh, um, and uh, often the quieter kids um, like Josiah um, who was a he was locked up for two years in Wilmington Delaware in a detention facility I was in um, and he's the main focus of that story um, it certainly wasn't right away I mean I knew him and I was in his classes and engaging with his classes but he, i would say he was pretty skeptical of me and you know who cares about some guy who writes books uh at first but um as he came along and his education and his opportunities started to open up um and even in juvenile hall this was a kid who started thinking about college um then he he sort of found me and uh I think I was just at the end of each day, like a, um, just someone he could get jazzed with and, and um, y yeah, tell his story and, and this passage in his life. Oh. When, you, you know, this, this is such a kind of big story in a way. There's so many kids who are caught up in the juvenile detention system and you know, even I, I can imagine even deciding which facilities to focus on. Did you start, you know, how did you determine what kind of research did you do to decide where to go? Um, oh, that, yeah, that, that's also kind of another naughty um, question. I mean, because uh, these are locked facilities and um, there are also, I would say, facilities, if a journalist is poking around a juvenile hall to write about it, um, the, <clears throat> the administrators inside can have a pretty good feeling that it's not going to be writing about anything good. You know? 
Um, so uh, again, like the the kids, there's some skepticism with a guy like me coming around saying uh, I'd like to to tell some stories about what you all do. Um, so as far as choosing the facilities, um, it, it was a detention center in Wilmington, Delaware, and actually I grew up near there. And in fact, as a kid, I used to play basketball and football against uh, the teams at this juvenile hall. I didn't play very well. <laughs> um, um, so that, uh, as far as just familiarity, um, I, I think Wilmington, Delaware, it's Delaware. So uh, obviously it's small, but um, I just know from personal experience, it, it's a pretty, I would say it's a small city, but the problems of the city of Wilmington, Delaware are America's problems um, is, is how I would mm. describe the draw for me um, as, as far as socioeconomic problems. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and also, you know, it's easier to get to a place when I have family there and whatnot. Um, San Francisco, uh, the reason I chose San Francisco, um, the Juvenile Justice Center, um, A, is because of the the contrast between San Francisco being one of the wealthiest, prettiest cities in America. I mean, I, I think the per capita, the second wealthiest and the second highest real estate prices. Um, and then literally on top of the city, on the top of a hill in the Twin Peaks neighborhood, you have their juvenile hall. And if you're in the waiting room, you can look down across the neighborhoods and the Golden Gate Bridge and see the bay and, and it's gorgeous. And yet you're in jail. Um, and I thought that contrast was uh, really, uh, what's the right adjective? Troubling, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, if you think of, if you try to put yourself in the shoes of a kid walking across the bridge between the courthouse and the juvenile hall in shackles and looking out the window and, and seeing all this below him, um, I, I just thought that must be an extreme version of that experience. Um, and then beyond that, I, I wanted to capture the Juvenile Justice Center in San Francisco. Actually, it's not a detention center. It operates more like a, like a county jail in the sense that it's where the kids there have not been, they haven't seen a judge yet. So they've been arrested, but deemed unfit for probation or guardianship. And so they're there in jail in this kind of limbo state um, and the turnover is high and kids are coming and going in the middle of the night. And in the meantime, there's seven teachers there trying each day with whatever kids are there that day to teach English. And <laughs> so, so in that section, history. you, you focused on the teachers rather than focusing on an individual student. Yeah, yeah. Um, mainly because I, I thought the vocation of teaching in an environment like that 
uh, teaching core classes is a pretty special vocation. Yeah. Not for the faint of heart. No kidding. No kidding. And then the last one, also you have a, it's it's in Manhattan, and you have the the contrast between being in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods and the school. Yeah, the the last section. Yeah. Um, and I mean, a lot of uh, points in Manhattan have that contrast. Um, the last section is about, actually, it's not a facility. It's a, it's kind of a life skills, professional skills program for kids who have just come through the system, come out of um, locked facilities. And uh, it's a transition program to um, uh, just help kids transition, not just back into their regular high schools, which we we can talk about. It's a really hard, hard transition um, just back into normal schools, but uh, also practicing for internships and uh, computer skills and interview skills and uh, um, and that section is, is really about the special relationships that form between young people in, in these in these hard passages and, and how they how they really do carry each other mm-hmm. now one thing I noticed was that you don't really insert yourself into the story at all I imagine that's a deliberate choice. Um, it is. I mean, going back to uh, what we were talking about a little bit ago, um, I'm not that interested in my own story, <laughs> I guess. And 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 uh, I, I mean, that's maybe a bigger question in journalism: um, how to situate yourself as the as the uh, observer or kind of a passive participant in different stories um, do you, um, do you I mean, think I, that your I've role read it many different ways do you think that your role as an observer in some of these stories may have affected the outcome for some of these kids the fact that somebody out there is paying attention that that could make a difference uh it's hard to say. I mean, I always, I always hope it's a positive thing. Again, just to have another person listening, without any pressure or expectation. Um, I, I like to think it's a positive thing for young people, just to feel, especially young boys who, who uh, are pretty accustomed to posturing and and kind of hiding emotions and uh, still living in a very, uh, what is still a very machismo culture and world, um, just to have another person listening. Um, I, I like to think that's basically a, a positive thing. And a, as far as actively participating or changing outcomes, uh I guess in the case of children of the state, I, I wish, and boys like Josiah and uh, Ian, I, I wish I could have done more. Um, 
it was interesting that um that Ian had a father who who did seem to care about him because a lot of the kids who get in trouble not all by any means but come from broken families or don't or were abandoned by one or both parents um and yet you know he had a father who was there but didn't seem to recognize the fact that his mother had abandoned him might have have caused some difficulty in his life he sort of almost was it seemed like almost defensive about that yeah he, yeah that's a good way to describe ian um and uh he he had a pretty short trigger uh when it when it came to um his mother and his father and his ability to sort of take care of himself and make his own decisions and make good decisions. Um, that there was a lot to untangle there. And, uh, um, with him, even these teachers, um, Ian, for your listeners, he, um, was going through the exalt program, which was the diversion program in Manhattan. And, uh, it's a, very demanding, challenging program, and not everybody makes it through. And uh, Ian reached a point where where he had to decide. Uh, he'd made it a long way, and he had to decide whether to um, keep going for the for the last six weeks of the program. Um, and uh, yeah, he he was rare in the among this population of. Uh, incarcerated children rare in the sense that he had a very active father in his life i mean a busy father who worked hard and had other responsibilities but a father who really who cared cared yeah and was there um and you know was would call and um um and i mean it's important that that section of the book is called exile because Ian, by the by, the courts of New Jersey. Um, once he got out of juvenile hall, he had to. He was legally not allowed to be in his hometown. Um, so he was dealing with with that displacement. And uh, yeah, I, I um, kind of. I mean, so where's the wisdom in that? I mean, I can understand wanting to separate kids from influences and break the patterns. Although in his case. It's like it seems like there was a little bit of a misjudgment about his in gang involvement, but 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 to separate them from their families doesn't seem like there's a lot of wisdom in that. I I would agree with I would agree with you there. Um, I, I tried somewhat not to get mired writing about systems and why some decisions get made. Um, I, with this decision to sort of excommunicate Ian from, from his hometown where his dad had a home and everything. Um, I, I think there were some political machinations involved there and uh, a lot of stuff that uh, didn't, uh, maybe served 
some people in the system but didn't serve Ian, certainly. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Jeff Hobbs, author of Children of the State, Stories of Survival and Hope in the Juvenile Justice System. Now, this, you know, you, you mentioned that the facilities kind of have an expectation that what is going to be written won't, won't be positive, and in a, in a, this is not an expose. This is not, look how horrible these facilities are. This is more... This look at how hard these people are trying to do a good job in the face of of everything they have to deal with. Uh, that's the intention for yeah. for sure. Um, and uh, you know the the people working there have their expectations, and maybe people outside readers would have their presumptions about what it what it probably looks and feels like inside a juvenile hall. Um, and I, I guess what I, and I'm just kind of an awkward guy who stumbles around again, these places and likes talking to people. But I, uh, I would say the intention is just to describe people who are living and working in systems that they had nothing to do with designing and structures they didn't lay any of the bricks for or the cinder blocks um, and they're just trying to do their best and um, and uh, just trying to do a decent job kids and adults I was actually almost surprised at how caring most of the adults that you write about seem to be um, because I've have some experience in in visiting and working in adult prisons and while while individual COs could be caring the the kind of the opportunities and the um, the systems there are much much less about trying to to help people than what you describe in these schools, particularly. And, like, there's almost no educational opportunities available for adult inmates, almost nothing in in our country anymore. There used to be, but it's become less and less, and it's really sad. Yeah, did you volunteer as a... I volunteer. I was working with the Toastmasters group. You with books? Um, with Toastmasters. In oh, okay. A yeah. Toastmasters club inside a prison. It's been a few years ago, but then I befriended, I befriended one of the inmates, and um, and so I have continued to stay involved with him and tried to help him get some college education and so forth. And, um, yeah, there's just, um, just very very little support for anything and he and this particular that must be a powerful skill for you to bring into yeah yeah he's he just got transferred from a maximum to a medium security and he's going to try and start a toastmasters club there so i'm i'm not involved in toastmasters anymore but i'm trying to help him get that get that going there and he also developed it's interesting because you mentioned fathers and sons he developed a program in this is in iowa's um, maximum security prison called Fathers and Sons, 
to um, where they would talk about, the inmates would get together to talk about how they could be better fathers from prison and when they got out. And um, he kind of developed that on his own. But um, Wow. Yeah, he, w- he went into that prison at age 19, and he's now... Um, late 40s so he's he had developed a lot of goodwill with the with uh, the administration there and that allowed him to be able to do some of those things um, I bet that's not common no <laughs> he must be a good man yeah a good man who made a terrible mistake when he was 19 um, yeah well that is yeah. very much the, the theme of I guess um, not just this book about juvenile halls, but the programs within juvenile halls. Like, yeah, these um, a lot of these kids haven't actually made terrible mistakes. A lot of them are there for missed probation appointments, and just once you're in the system, it it gets easier to stay in the system. Yeah. Uh, because of certain rules and, and differences between counties and cities. But uh, anyway, um, but there's also kids there who have who have uh, hurt people and sometimes killed people. And uh, that, as a, as a counselor in one of these places, as, a, as an English teacher, um, as a principal, as a as a disciplinarian, what, what do you do with? Yeah, it seemed like I think you wrote about one of the teachers who just who really didn't know want to know what what they had done to get there. Uh, yeah, one teacher told me that specifically, but that actually, as I spent a lot of time, um, a, a lot of employees in locked facilities for kids um, make a point to try not to know what kids are there for so that they can take those judgments out of it. Right. Um, I mean, th- those it, it does come out whether, whether you read the intake form or not. Um, you know, kids are talking and, and it's like any school, there's loads of gossip and loads of loads of uh, you know there's a hierarchy and um, all those things that that happen when you put kids in a small space together Um, we were talking about fathers and sons and actually one curious thing I a pattern I guess was that the kids who seem to draw the most scorn not just from their peers but from the adults the kids who had the adults shaking their heads the most were actually the boys who had caring fathers in their lives and a support network outside. Um, they uh, seem to be the most confounding to the to the adults because the feeling is kind of like, what are you doing here? If you yeah. have people looking <laughs> after you, why did you why did you steal that car? Why did you break that window? Why did you punch that kid like you're cared for you don't need to be here yeah yeah but 
I mean, throughout history, young males in particular, in all kinds of circumstances, have done stupid, stupid things because their brains aren't aren't mature enough to understand how stupid they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jeff, would you like to read a little bit from Children of the State? Um, sure. Is, is there? I'm happy to. Okay. Um, and, and I marked a couple short passages because uh, um, I, I was told that you give this opportunity, which is really nice of you. Yeah, that would be great. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I thought maybe I could start with um, in the Delaware facility, which, again, is a detention center. So these kids have been um, – they've seen a judge. They know they're going to be here for three months or six months or a year, whatever their sentence is. And uh, during that time, um, this boy, Josiah, who was 17, learned that uh, – because he was in juvenile hall and he had no choice but to go to school every day, he was getting enough credits to actually graduate from high school and possibly go to community college um, if he put a little extra work in. And he was kind of wrestling with this idea because um, he knew it was a good idea, but it was a lot of work. And mainly what he was wrestling with was uh, what he predicted would be a lot of you know, that other kids would make fun of him and give him a hard time and, and make these months still in jail pretty hard for him. Um, and uh, he befriended uh, another boy who was on the same track who was who was trying to help him in this decision of whether or not to try to go to college. That's the context. Um, so the boy's name is Josiah and uh, his friend's his supportive friend's name is Cassio, and they're in a um, kind of a life skills class. Uh, Cassio stood in front of the class. He clasped his hands behind his back in a scholarly fashion and spoke in fluid sentences, each its own contained thought. Juvenile Hall felt like a barrage of overlapping stream of consciousness garble much of the time, so the soliloquy was stunning in its measured cadence alone. It's well understood that the wise man listens. The wise man steps back and tries to understand the situation. The wise man seeks advice. On the other hand, the fool doesn't listen at all. The fool acts impulsive. The fool doesn't think about his mistakes. The fool believes that he already knows everything. Josiah had not befriended Cassio in earnest yet, but he'd been paying close attention to the way Cassio carried himself particularly in this classroom. Cassio seemed to do some things naturally, such as listen and ask questions that Josiah needed to learn how to do. The other three boys in class slumped forward sleepily. Little Axel was particularly somnambulant. He'd gained considerable weight over the past two months and now had his arms folded atop a defined pot belly. Josiah assumed that whatever meds he was on caused lethargy and a slow metabolism. Can you learn from a fool? Cassio asked rhetorically. Yes, Josiah said. Then is he really a fool if he's able to teach? A fool isn't stupid. He just doesn't know any better. 
What would you call a person who doesn't know better? Cassio asked. I'd call him ignorant. Cassio raised one finger. Ah, he said with a rehearsed smile. He was practicing for a presentation he was set to give at a conference for administrators and business people in the realm of alternative education. So maybe you would say that an ignorant man can become a wise man if he learns from his regrets. Josiah shrugged, maybe. Then maybe you could say that you don't have to hold on to regrets if you learn from them. Maybe you could say that regrets are just teachable moments to help people grow. Little Axel, who'd been sleeping, chuckled with his eyes still closed. You don't see many people learning much here, Josiah said, or thinking much, honestly. Maybe you and I don't see the same thing then. What about yourself? What about myself? Um, I've been here with you for a year and a half in the cottages and now here. And I know for a fact that you've learned plenty since you've been here, particularly this year. Cassio said, and all you do sometimes is think, wreck time, every night. All these kids are messing and talking trash, and you're sitting somewhere thinking. Not about much, Josiah was aware that he sounded defensive. He'd lost track of what point he was arguing or why he was arguing at all. Well, back up, Cassio said. You got here some months ago. You didn't talk for like two or three weeks. Your head was always on the desk. You seemed mad most of the time. You wanted to keep everyone away. Do you think you were acting as a wise man or a fool? Josiah made a chortling sound and leaned back in his chair to suggest being finished with this conversation. Cassio just kept staring with gentle and inquisitive eyes. I guess I was mostly a fool, Josiah said. Now I see you doing extra work in the library, never asleep in class. I hear you asking questions about random stuff and staying out of all the nonsense that happens here. I see you avoiding conflicts and being on honor roll and trying to graduate. So would you consider yourself a wise man now? Josiah nearly made a joke about the honor roll at Ferris School not signifying a particularly grand accomplishment, but he withheld it because the list was actually meaningful. His name had become a fixture on it. He didn't respond for a time, but Cassio waited patiently. And finally, Josiah said, I don't know, maybe I could be. Um, and, and so that was a, just a, uh, a pretty, that was maybe a little long, but it, it was a pretty special interaction. I oh, yeah. Be a part of in, in class. When you were, were, did you talk at all in the classroom? Oh, yeah, I, I would sometimes, uh, um, I mean, not in any kind of authoritative way, but yeah, I, I would be a, it was fun to be a part of the discussion. <laughs> Um, talk about books and oh yeah yeah um, I would sometimes help with writing exercises and try to be useful if if uh, there was space. Do you do you stay in touch with any of them after you're finished? Uh, yeah, uh, it's. Um, I was talking about this recently with my daughter actually who. Is 13 now. Um, that uh, doing this work, there's there's a mournfulness to it because um, you know I'm doing it and I'm there and I'm in the classes and talking with these people who uh, 
uh, I admire and people who are complicated and and then I'm writing a book and still talking to them and it's special those relationships I think it's special on on both ends um, and with the teachers as well um, and uh, it, it, you know it, it really energizes my life and it's why I love this work but mm -hmm. then um, at some point the project the book is finished and um, it's out for better or for worse and uh, you you hang on to the you hang on to the relationships but it it changes I mean I, I still talk to Josiah um, here and there and uh, um, sometimes it's like he asks for advice or for a recommendation or um, something and often it's just to check in but uh, once the book is done like uh, there's more space just because I'm not there every day anymore and the relationship um, as as hard as you try to cling to it 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 fades and uh, it changes shape a little bit and also people get older and um, move on. So uh, I, I'm sorry. I, it's kind of <laughs> well. I think I, that's I really true for question, for I, teachers too. You know, you you can get very involved. As you know, I've never been a teacher, but my mother was, and and I um, have other people in my life who are teachers. And you know, you can get very involved in with you know really fond of these people and these children, and then they go on to another another teacher and you could get a whole nother classroom and have to start yeah. all over again. Yeah. No, that's a really good analogy. It makes me think of a, a teacher at the San Francisco detention center who uh, works in like the max security area. So uh, mostly uh, kids who have um, done stuff. And uh, uh, one of his classes, a, a kid who he seemed to know pretty well, uh, made a big show of like a poetry performance. It was funny. And then, um, and there was like a fight argument later. A anyway, after I, I was in the teacher's office and he pulled out, he had once taught a first grade class in a public school and he brought out his like yearbook page from one of his first grade classes from uh, 15 years before or about 15 years. And, Three of the kids in his first grade school class were in that juvenile hall. Oh my goodness! <laughs> well, um, the which, the woman who yeah. um, helps me with the writersvoices.com blog, and so she does, you know, does the posts for me. Is a school teacher in a fairly low income area um, in Texas, and she normally. I think she was teaching third grade, but for a number of years, she and a couple other teachers uh, decided to cycle through with the kids for and stay with the same group of kids for a couple of years. So they would teach third grade, and then they'd teach fourth, and then they'd teach fifth, and then go back and start over again. Yeah, I've heard of a, that system. It seems, I mean, challenging in, in certain ways, but it must yeah, be Yeah, I, I think, you know, for the teachers, it would definitely be challenging because you have to have three different curriculum, you know, lesson plans 
mm-hmm. you know, and you you can't just reuse the same one year after year. You have to have it for each age group. But I think for some of those kids, it's, it could be one of the more stable relationships in their life. Um, yeah. You know, if they have if they have a lot of um, family interruptions, which not all of them do, but some do. So I really. What grade did you say your friend was teaching? I think third, fourth, and fifth. Yeah, and I mean that's that tender age when uh, you sort of decide whether or not you like school. Yeah, yeah. And whether school's a stable place. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, I got I I admire all teachers, and I f- feel like we don't give them enough support. I want to do a um actually a shout out right here to this organization called um, Donors Choose, which where teachers can put up projects that need financial support and you can get a tax deductible donation um, to help get more books into schools or, or like I, I donated quite a bit for um, tablets during COVID so that the kids who did not have access to a computer at home would would be able to and uh, printers and things like that. So yeah, the the uh, that same that San Francisco school utilizes donors choose, um, uh, especially for classroom supplies, but especially for hygiene. Mm. And, and oh so yeah, yeah. That, uh, that can be short supply. It's a wonderful organization. I was just hearing yesterday from a friend was telling me the story. I forget the name, but the man who started it was a history teacher um, and just was looking for a way to, uh, to, because everybody wants to help, not everybody, but a lot of people want to help public schools, but it can be hard to sort through the different levels of district levels and all the bureaucracy. and, uh, And so he just had this idea of, creating a direct channel where people could just yeah and it's it's great for me because it it's an automatic tax deduction too if you're if you're itemizing you know my my other in my other life i'm a was a tax preparer for many years and and so you know i focus on the on the tax savings but it's it's very very easy to do donorschoose.org probably is what it is but Mm -hmm. um so hopefully some listeners will check that out. So, Jeff, before we run out of time, let's talk a little bit about the movie. So what's going on with that? Um, oh, yeah, you must have seen that. or uh, Yeah. Um, uh, announcement or something. Um, right. A movie of the, the story I mentioned at the beginning about my friend Rob. Yes. He's. Um, I think I, I honestly don't have much to do with it, um, <laughs> except that uh, um, I met the. Uh, have you ever seen Twelve Years a Slave? Yes. The, the movie. Um, yes. So you would remember the actor Chiwetel. He was the main um, character in that movie, Chiwetel Ejiofor. Yes. Yeah. Um, so he uh, found. That book, The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace, he had a funny story. He actually said he was getting back from a trip, like working on a movie or something, and he was outside the door of his apartment, and he heard his girlfriend inside 
weeping. Um, and he was like, oh, my God, what did I do? Uh, and he opened the door, and she had actually just finished reading about Rob. Um, oh. Just found that book. Um, but a- anyway, he, he just has done everything. He wrote it. He is directing it. He's uh, starring in it. He, I've met him a couple times. He just has a seems like he has a really good spirit. So he, he uh, made that happen. And um, and I, I guess the only story I have that might be kind of fun is that uh, the I got to I visited the set just uh, two times. And they were actually filming at Rob's actual high school in Newark, New Jersey. Um, and, and really, it's kind of a busy atmosphere. I, I just felt like I was going to, was trying not to trip anybody or anyone who was really working. But um, I was there with Rob's mom. Um, and it was pretty emotional for both of us, but definitely for her, not only because the uh, it's pretty bizarre, I think, to have that be happening, but um, also to be in his actual physical school. But uh, we were watching a scene. They were shooting like a water polo scene. Rob actually played water polo, like an inner city water polo team. Um, and the actor who was playing like a young version of Rob couldn't catch the, the water polo ball. <laughs> So the ball kept, uh, you know, they had these big cameras and whatnot. And Jackie and I were just way in the back bleachers. But uh, she started kind of smirking and saying, uh, you know, Rob would have caught that. (laughs) Um, It was a, but uh, yeah, it probably will come out in the, in the fall sometime. Wow. So, I mean, for a lot of people, a lot of authors, having their book made into a movie is is kind of um, a dream or a fantasy. Was it something that you ever dreamt about or was it totally out of the blue for you? Um, I didn't imagine it would, because it's, it's pretty stressful because these are real people <clears throat> and uh, and obviously I wrote a book about them. So, um, I mean, I own that, but, uh, I mean, in, in the book, I, I can pay attention to every sentence and, uh, and try to, uh, just depict people right and treat people right and be honest. And, uh, um, but with, you know, with a movie, it's someone else's vision and uh, it's kind of, stressful to uh like let go i guess uh, he, he was my friend too yeah so you you, um, it, you it would, don't have any a, yeah you don't have any control over how he is being portrayed in um, the movie yeah because you know the actor i think is making decisions and chiwetel the writer and director obviously they're making decisions to make it a better movie um which is very different form from a book. So there's a lot of kind of um, uh, submission, kind of giving up to just trusting these people. And, and uh, uh, it, it seemed when I was there, like everybody was was uh, was really 
respectful. I don't mean to sound obnoxious or anything. I'm really grateful <laughs> for the whole thing. Of course, um, of course. It, but it, it's yeah, of, I can pretty wild. I can understand that would be. I think it might be different if it were fiction. It might be more fun for you. But I can. I I never had thought about the concerns that you would have in this situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, I'm sitting next to Rob's mom and, you know, she's saying like, well, Rob wasn't that short. Like, <laughs> uh, stuff like that. But, um, and then it was also sort of neat um, last story, but uh, uh, Rob's mom is being played by a actress who's also a famous um, hip hop singer named uh, Mary J. Blige. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I never met her or anything. And I think she's so, um, uh, famous, you know, she had her own space and, uh, <laughs> um, she, she wasn't like hanging out. Right. Right. Stuff, if you know what I mean? <laughs> right. I think at one point, Jackie, Jackie said, uh, that, and Jackie is very humble and, and, she doesn't ask for things, but she said she started to suggest that it would be nice if she could sort of meet the person who's going to be acting as her in a movie. Um, and I asked uh, maybe someone who seemed in charge if that was possible. And she got kind of stressed, like, you can't bother Mary Blige. Mm. I don't know. Um, and then actually the hairdresser, um, who was this very, um, kind of jolly older guy, um, overheard that and he grabbed Jackie and said, you're coming with me and we're going to the trailer. And, uh, so she got to meet the Aww. actress, which was kind of, kind of fun too. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so that's my only movie. <laughs> so Jeff, we only have a few minutes left. I just want to talk a little bit about your writing process. So in in these books you're doing, you're basically embedding yourself um with the people that you're going to be writing about. Do you do you write concurrently with that or do you just spend the time and then go back later and start writing? Oh, a uh, good question. There is some overlap maybe in terms of uh, um, outlining. Um, I I'm not really writing prose at the same time that I'm spending all day um, in places or with people um, just because just those, it's such a different space and uh so do you take notes so while you're in the classroom or in the space, or do you do it? Um, yeah, I'm generally, so in juvenile halls, I, I, I'm not recording. I'm not, like I left my phone and devices outside in a locker just because uh, it's a jail. Right, right. Um, and I didn't want to bother anybody with like waivers or anything. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I was writing in a notebook all day, but I also understood that, uh, um, kids, if, if I was like scribbling in a notebook while kids are in the middle of class, that's a very distracting and b to a teacher who's doing a hard job anyway. 
um, and distracting to kids who want to know what you're writing about um, and trying to, you know, peer over the right, desk right. <laughs> getting worked up. So uh, in the specific case of being in the juvenile hall, um, I would, uh, I mean, I would take some very minor notes in my notebook in the classes, but then um, in between classes, I had kind of like a, like a corner I would retreat to and just write everything that had just happened oh. um, for sort of 20, 20 minutes between classes. And then you'd go back in the evening and review that and flesh it out? Uh, yeah, then, then, yeah, type those things out and make sure I, I had the quotes and, um, you know, list the things that I would need to fact check with teachers or go back over with the students and um, um, and I, I do something that again some it's probably a bigger journalistic question um, which is reporting people's feelings and people's internal lives um, in in the midst of the experiences they're mm. going through what what people feel um, which uh, I, I believe is important. I know some um, some journalists might think that's kind of overstepping. I mean, that's a conversation. But uh, um, I would use those notes uh, to maybe the next day go back to Josiah, say, like when, you know, the teacher had you up on the board doing that division problem and you were struggling. What, what, what did that feel like? So, yeah, and you really like do. It seems like you really do get inside their heads. And and Jeff, unfortunately, we're out of time, but um, I want to thank you. Um, I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry if I kind of went went on and on sometimes. No apology needed. Um, Children of the State: Stories of Survival and Hope in the Juvenile Justice System. It's out on the shelves now. And we always close with a quote. I found one from Robert Schuler that I think is apropos here. Let your hopes, not your hurts, shape your future. Thank you again, Jeff, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Thank you, Monica. Thank you.